it. You ruined everything. Shh. It's the film flavors. Hi, guys. I'm Chris. Hey, everybody. I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And it's time for our monthly feature presentation deep dive. This month, we are covering Karin Kusama's The Invitation. So yeah, this was um, a second watch for me, and I think this is the first time you've actually watched The Invitation, right, Chris? Yes, although I had heard about it. Yeah. In depth. And I, the first time I had watched it, had not. So Yeah, and so this is going to be a very spoilery episode, right? All of them are. But this is one of those movies where spoilers can uh, affect your experience of the film, maybe in a negative way. I knew the ending and I still enjoyed it. Yeah, because there's 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 like a, a little twist or a revelation, you know, at the end of the movie. And, you know, in, in true Film Flamers fashion, we're going to read a synopsis and um, it will be spoiled. So, yeah, it's like you you know what's going to happen in the movie. It It really is not subtle, but. There is something at the end, you know, so if you want to skip our synopsis or actually skip this episode and watch that, that would be the best thing for you. So go watch The Invitation right now. It's on Netflix and then come back. And if you don't care, then we hope it's an entertaining episode nonetheless. <laughs> so The Invitation is a 2015 American horror thriller film directed by Karin Kusama, as we said, and written by uh, Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi. The film stars Logan Marshall Green, Tammy Blanchard, and John Carroll Lynch. The music for the film was composed by Theodore Shapiro. It premiered at the South by Southwest Festival in 2015, where Draft House Films actually acquired the distribution rights. It later screened at the London Film Festival in October of that year and had a video on demand and limited theatrical release in April of 2016. So Draft House Film, is that Alamo Draft House yes. Films? Mm-hmm. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, they have a whole slew of films oh. that they have distributed, yeah. I just thought it was some random distribution company. No. I didn't. It's Alamo Draft House. Look at that. Good for us, Texas. Mm-hmm. Even though I know that there's Alamo Draft House all over the country at this point, but I mean, hey, they originated right here. Well, there's none in the Northeast that I know about. Um, there's some in the Carolinas, I think, but I don't know any further north than that. But yeah, I'm dying for one because every time I go to this AMC theater, it's just all the advertising you can think of, and it's just AMC this, AMC that, sucking their own balls, you know, and <laughs> it's just. <laughs> Alamo Draft House is so good about the pre-show and everything else. Everything's kind of snarky. Everything's a little tongue-in-cheek versus AMC is just like, only at AMC theaters can you get the AMC signature recliners as well as the AMC signature surround sound and the AMC signature popcorn. Don't you want that AMC signature fucking Coca-Cola? Like, stop it, you know? Stop it. Well, I do appreciate AMC for having those freestyle machines. I mean... (laughs) That's enough. Yeah, well, I can just tell the person at the draft house to bring me whatever the fuck I want, including alcoholic beverages. I guess you can do that at some AC- AMCs as well. But but you can't still. get a diet vanilla Coke at the Alamo Draft House. <laughs> I mean, that I know of. I don't know. Why don't you open a franchise and I'll come up there and run it? Yeah, that, yeah, I would love to if I had money. So the invitation is pretty much to me like the very definition of a slow burn, right? Um, I was really not looking forward to trying to tackle a synopsis for this movie. Thankfully, my co-host here took the reins and did it. Yeah. So. <laughs> that took me way longer than I expected. I didn't even think about it. I was like, just give me a synopsis. Yeah. So buckle up, people, because this is going to be a doozy. So without further ado, we would like to invite you 
to the invitation. <laughs> that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Here is the invitation. This thing is so official. Maybe they're overcompensating. It's kind of hard to call everybody up out of the blue after two years. I'm so glad you're here. We've got a lot to talk about. So much to celebrate tonight. Each and every one of us is on a journey. And we feel that it's important to be on that journey with the people you love. Everybody, this is my friend Pruitt. on the windows and no security safer you've been acting so suspicious of our hospitality well jesus has it been like this lot so agitated how has he been handling things he can be self-destructive I think he's doing the best he can. Something doesn't feel safe here. We don't see you for two years, and then all of a sudden, we get invited to this lavish dinner. Don't tell me that this is normal. What do you think is happening, Will? This beautiful moment is upon us. Tonight is the night our faith is made real. Will, played by Logan Marshall Green, drives with his new girlfriend Kira to the Hollywood Hills home of his ex-wife Eden, played by Tammy Blanchard, who is hosting a dinner party with her new husband David, played by Mikiel Hausman. Years ago, Will and Eden had divorced after trying to cope with their young son Ty's accidental death. Eden met her new husband David at a grief support group, and their party will be the first time any of their friends have seen the couple in over two years. On the way to the party, Will mercy kills a coyote after hitting it with his car. Shaken, Will and Kira arrive at the party. Eden and David's other dinner guests are Tommy, Tommy's boyfriend Miguel, and friends Ben, Claire, and Gina. Gina mentions that her boyfriend Choi is running late. Eden introduces Sadie to the group, a girl she and David met while in Mexico who is now staying with them. Throughout the evening, Will wanders his former home alone and relives memories related to his son Ty's death, including a traumatic memory of Eden's attempted suicide afterwards. In the kitchen, Will witnesses Eden slap Ben when he makes a joke about her new age ideas on expelling pain and trauma. Shortly afterward, Eden and David's friend Pruitt arrives, played by John Carroll Lynch, whom no one else knows. Will notices that David locked the front door and begins to exhibit paranoia about the intentions of their hosts. Will is sent to get more firewood from the backyard and spies Eden, 
place a pill bottle in a drawer through her bedroom window. Looking stressed, she composes herself and rejoins the party. Later, upon investigating, Will opens the drawer and brings one of the pills to Miguel, who tells him it's phenobarbital. Miguel explains that, yes, they're dangerous, but anything's dangerous if there's enough of it. As the group comes together, David and Eden tell their guests about a group they joined along with Pruitt and Sadie called The Invitation to work through grief using spiritual philosophy. David shows everyone a video in which group leader Dr. Joseph comforts a dying woman as she takes her last breaths. This leaves the party a little confused and more than a little disturbed. Someone shows up at the door and the group hopes it's Gina's boyfriend Choi finally arriving to the party. But David answers the door and explains it was just strangers looking for a party nearby. The group begins to play a game of I want, where Eden kisses Ben, possibly as some kind of apology for slapping him earlier, and Gina asks for cocaine, which surprisingly is provided to her by David, and Pruitt confesses to accidentally killing his wife and doing time in prison for it. This is a major downer for the group, and David tries to talk an unsettled Claire out of leaving. Will confronts David about the weirdness and intentions of the party and demands that he let Claire leave if she wants to. Claire leaves, accompanied by Pruitt, whose car is blocking Claire's. From the front window, Will watches Pruitt move his car for Claire and attempt to talk to her one last time out of sight. Will is interrupted when David confronts him about his obvious paranoia, attempting to reassure him that there is no ill will and that there is nothing to worry about. During dinner, Will reflects on Ty's death. While walking through a hallway, Will sees Eden and David's friend Sadie making odd, unhinged faces into the bathroom mirror. Knowing he saw her, she follows him out to the pool, where she offers to have sex with him. Remaining true to his girlfriend Kira, he refuses her advances. Later, Will has a separate discussion with Tommy about the odd atmosphere in the house. Tommy tells Will that this reunion was always going to be weird and uncomfortable after so much time, especially considering the trauma that had happened, not to mention everyone's new partners. Alone again, Will finally gets cell phone signal and finds a voicemail from Choi, indicating that he was at Eden and David's house before the other guests. Presuming that David and Eden must have done something to Choi, Will publicly confronts the couple about their apparent cult brainwashing. Despite their own bewilderment of the party and its hosts, the other guests are mortified of Will's aggressive accusations, including Will's girlfriend Kira, who tells him it's time to go. Just then, Choi arrives unexpectedly explaining that he was called away by work the last second when he arrived earlier in the evening. Will is ashamed and apologizes for his outburst and accusations. The others attempt to move on with the party, attributing his outburst to Will's residual grief over his son Ty's death. Will asks to see his son's old room and excuses himself, finding that it has been converted into an office. Looking out the window, Will sees David in the backyard lighting a red lantern and hanging it on a pole. Stepping away from the window, Will does some investigating, opening yet another drawer that doesn't belong to him. There, Will finds a laptop, and after opening the lid, it plays a video of Dr. Joseph saying, Tonight is the night our faith is made real, and that the hardest thing is to start, to take this step. After Pruitt asks Will to rejoin the group, David pours drinks for the guests and toasts to a better world and to peace. Deciding to act yet again on his paranoia, Will panics and attempts to smash everyone's glasses, fearing they're poisoned. Sadie flies into a rage and attacks Will, who attempts to defend himself by pushing her off of him, and she hits her head sickeningly on the buffet table. 
As the panic group tends to an unconscious Sadie, Kira notices that Gina has collapsed at the table, foaming at the mouth and not breathing, revealing that Will was right about the drinks after all. David, Eden, and Pruitt attack the guests, killing Miguel, Choi, and Ben. Will, Kira, and Tommy flee and hide in the house. Will overhears David telling Eden that what they are doing is the only way they can leave the earth and be freed from their pain. Pruitt finds and attacks Will and Kira. The couple overpower him, and Kira beats him to death with a fireplace poker. Afterwards, Eden shoots Will in the shoulder, and upon realizing what she's done and what has become of her, she shoots herself in the stomach. As David comes up the stairs to kill Will and Kira, Tommy suddenly comes out of hiding, attacks David, and stabs him to death. As she dies, Eden asks Will to come to her in her final moments, finally admitting that she still feels the pain of their son's loss, misses him, and that she's sorry. Kira, Will, and Tommy reunite and head outside. Kira and Will hear sirens and see helicopters flying above. From their vantage point, they can see homes across the city lit with the same red lantern that David lit earlier in the evening. Will realizes that the whole of Los Angeles is erupting in chaos as other cult members throughout the city carry out their plans. <laughs> I'm sorry, was that tiring for you? <laughs> there's like there's a, there's a lot going on in this movie solely through like like dialogue and like silent reaction, you know? And so like having to to synopsize this film is is difficult because you really if you leave something out you kind of feel like you've diminished, like you dismissed the entire plot or yeah. whatever, you know? And honestly, we're like the only people I think that go this much depth in a synopsis. Everyone else kind of gives a summary, you know, and, and I find it's easier to do a full synopsis uh, just because we reference back to those moments and don't have to explain the whole scene every single time, you know? And so I don't know, we'd, we'd be open to feedback. Uh, if you guys think that our synopsis are a little overboard, uh, or if you guys are skipping through them, let us know. Or if you find them helpful, definitely let us know that. So the invitation was officially released on April the 8th, 2016, both in limited theaters and through video on demand. It earned $232,000 domestically and worldwide. The box office went to $355,000 um, against its budget of $1 million. So didn't quite make it. Well, yeah, that's true. But with video on demand, you know, Netflix isn't releasing those numbers. Right. And what they attribute a dollar value to be for what something makes. Uh, we don't know any of that, really. We know views uh, sometimes if they release that. We sometimes, don't know that for this, yeah. really. So it could have easily made more. And I'm sure it has because it's been talked about a lot, right? Yeah, I mean, so a, a lot of people really talk about this movie quite a bit. And it made its way to Netflix pretty fast after that initial VOD release. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it's safe to say that it's it's still making some money, yeah. you know? Yeah. The Invitation has an 88% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on 100 reviews and an audience score of 70%. The consensus reads... The Invitation makes brilliant use of its tension-rich premise to deliver a uniquely effective and surprisingly clever slow-building thriller. Justin Chang of Variety wrote in his review, This teasingly effective thriller represents director Karin Kusama's strongest work in years. And I think um, 
prior to this movie, I know that she directed Girl Fight, was like her really big breakout yes, movie, that right? Was very so good. Sort of like Sundance Darling. Mm-hmm. And then she did what it, what in my opinion is a very underrated horror movie called um Jennifer's Body. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um I mean I like that movie quite a bit. She went on to do recently a movie called Destroyer starring um Nicole Kidman, which is very, very good. So if y'all haven't seen that, go check it out. Josh Kopecki of the Austin Chronicles said, There are some very interesting ideas about grief, depression, and how we cope with life-changing events in this modern world, but ultimately, the film doesn't offer anything new to the dinner party from hell subgenre. Is that a subgenre? <laughs> I mean, I don't I can't think of many other movies. Me either. Like I mean Clue? Not it's not a dinner party though. It's like there are dinner parties in these things, but I don't know if like I don't know, maybe we're just like blinking. But like, hey, listeners. Like, please let us know if there's a whole subgenre here that we have ignored. Because obviously I need to do some exploration in that one. Um, so it was nominated for a slew of Fangoria Chainsaw Awards, Best Screenplay, which it won. Um, it was nominated for Best Limited Release Film. It was nominated for Best Actor for Logan Marshall Green. Best Supporting Actor for uh, John Carroll Lynch. Interesting. So Interesting choice. Yeah. Okay. And I have to say, I mean, like, I think that those two performances are really, really good. John Carroll Lynch, especially, I think is good in this movie. But uh, to me, like the shining star of it really was was Tammy Blanchard. Yeah, me too. I thought that she was so, so good in this movie. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. Like um, Logan Marshall Green, a lot of people used to call him like uh, poor man's Tom Hardy. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they look similar, I suppose. And uh, I remember him from Prometheus. And, of course, uh, the amazing film that was Upgrade. Upgrade. Man, love yes. that. And, uh, of, but, of course, I have to agree with you. Tammy Blanchard is just amazing. I loved I loved seeing her. She has such a presence in this movie. Like, um, maybe it was the way that she was, like, styled or the, 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 the dress that she was given to wear, right? But to me, she has this, like, really 1940s movie star-esque kind of look to her. And, I mean, it's sort of fitting for the Hollywood Hills locale of the movie and everything. She was serving me Judy Garland <laughs> haunting on Hill House realness. <laughs> Because Chris told me today that she played Judy Garland in a movie. I didn't know. Like uh, she won an Emmy and was nominated for Golden Globe for, uh, I think it's a Showtime original uh, miniseries called uh, Me and My Shadows, I think. And it was a Judy Garland story. And she played a young Judy Garland and she was amazing in it. Hmm. I'll have to look that up. I haven't seen it because, I mean... So this is the second time that I've seen the invitation, um, and I, I was I was struck by her the first time, but I think even more so um, on this particular viewing, and because um, I think having seen this movie once before, and then you know knowing the, the the twist at the end and and everything, I was sort of free to pay more attention to yeah. it, right? Smaller details, right? Because I know exactly what's going on, but um, she's just fantastic in this movie yeah well all the performances i I would say were good and john carroll lynch is good in just about anything that i see him in i think he's a really underrated character actor you know or is he underrated at this point i think i don't know Uh, you know i remember seeing him in you know american horror story as twisty the clown and then this season uh you know he plays a variety of different things for the same character that character goes through a huge evolution and this uh latest season he was probably one of the best things about this season of american horror story um Mm -hmm. and obviously he's been in a whole bunch of other things um he's been in uh quite a bit like he was in uh fargo and face off uh shutter island 
and Zodiac as I think one of the people that were basically alluded to be the Zodiac killer. Yep. Um, you know, he's been in a lot and he's even directing now. So, you know, more power to him. He's just, I mean, he's, he's really good whenever he, he gets into a role. I think he's one of those actors that really like dives into it. He's very methody, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and, and it, it pays off. I think that scene when they're playing the game, I want, and he sort of like delves into that, that um, monologue of, you know, what happened when he you know accidentally killed his wife. It's so haunting and um, he's so good at playing Ernest. Yeah, he's just so good at that. That's that's a really good way to put it, you know. But <clears throat> I found myself getting like lost in it. Like I will sit there and stare at it, and it's almost like hypnotizing in a way when he's speaking those lines, and you could almost like feel the the discomfort that people are starting to feel around him, yeah. you know. And it's just like a masterful performance, and so bravo, Fangoria Chainsaw Awards for doing. And that. he's not a striking person like he's an everyman he doesn't have the best voice he doesn't have the best look or anything like he's not an anthony hopkins and he's you know nothing like like a james dean like he's just he's an everyman and but he has a quality to him where he talks to the camera and you just believe anything that he tells you and you know it's true for sure you know yeah so it's just he's he was a very interesting good choice it was very well cast i would say agreed completely agreed and this is a slightly, you know, this is a lot of fun things to play with for actors, I think, because this horror movie is a little bit different in that um, it is a little bit more horror than your average psychological thriller to me. Uh, it's actually listed on Wikipedia as a, a horror thriller. And it, it has to do with a lot of adult fear, right? Like losing your child in an accident or your spouse attempting suicide. Uh, And as the story progresses, helplessly losing one's friends and even significant others right in front of you is also definitely, you know, qualifiers for that. Well, and I would throw more into adult fear than that. I think that, I mean, nobody likes, likes divorce, right? And, and, and the, you know, the things that come from it and having to, you know, sort of like continue a life with someone that you are not really continuing a life with, at least in that particular manner, right? And, um, Mm -hmm. It's so awkward sometimes in this movie, the way that Will's character and, and Eden's character interact, and then the way that they interact with the other friends, right? I kind of got the sense that, like, that Will sees them more often, obviously, because they say they haven't seen Eden in two years, right? And, um, I don't know. It's just like the the interactions were were so awkward, but it seemed like they were acting more awkwardly around Will than they were Eden, you know? Well, it was very smart for them to do that, to put that gap of time in there, because we're inheriting all of this weight to their story right at the get-go. It all happens off screen before we get in the theater or on our couches. And, you know, um, to say it's been two years, it's almost just like an invitation they can't refuse just out of curiosity and obligation and everything else, right? It's not like, oh, these people are weirdos now. We're hesitating going. They're already hesitating going because of all of the shit that happened, not because of who these people are now, but because of the shared experience they had. And I think that's very smart of the script to do so, that. I mean, do you really think that they they think they're weirdos though? Because I, I kind of got... No. Yeah, I kind of got this. That's those, what I'm saying. Yeah, they, they, they didn't know. know that they were involved in the invitation until they show up to the party, right? Yeah. Exactly, right? So we're inheriting this this weight of this history, not because they know something about them now or anything that's going to happen. And that's interesting. As a narrative device, they kind of rely on foreshadowing a lot 
And so right from the beginning, how did what did you think of how this this movie started, like with the running over the coyote? Well, I mean, obviously, like that's a huge sense of foreboding, right? When at the very start of the movie, pre-credit, right? That they're they're opening up yeah. an invitation and they're driving through the hills, which obviously looks like a, a drive that I really don't want to make. I mean, so like twisty and turny and way uphill. And then it's obviously like a tense situation between Will and Kira. And then when they, they hit that, coyote and they, they he walks out of the car and takes a look at it and the animals like suffering right there and i you know the first time i watched it i thought to myself are they gonna leave that that animal just right there and then no he grabs a tire iron and sort of bludgeons it to death to put it out of its misery and <clears throat> i was like okay well this movie is <laughs> probably not gonna end well if it's beginning like this you know yeah and it just it's kind of reminiscent of get out a little bit which is obviously a more recent horror film compared to this one and i'm wondering if jordan peele looked at this film and thought you know that's a great tool i'm gonna do that um i i think they sort of came out around the same time didn't they i mean get out was a 2016 horror movie 2017 maybe i i can't remember i'd have to look it up 2017 and this was really coming out and the end you know like festivals in 2015 and i mean and that's possible i think that maybe he he took a page from from this particular movie they had to kill a deer and get out right yeah yeah and um so i i don't know i mean it's just like i i think it really sets up who the character will is at that particular moment right that i mean mm-hmm. some people might just drive off and leave that animal to suffer on its own but no he's he's the kind of guy yeah. that puts it out of its well, misery yeah and the the invitation cult believes that a merciful death ends all suffering bringing them to paradise with family and friends. And so it's kind of a foreshadowing of that kind of belief system too. But at the end of the day, it has other things to say about it. You know? um, I mean, so how did you view that particular moment? No, I thought it was excellent. Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit, it's not subtle, but it's obviously not flashing neon lights. Like it, it gets yeah. to later. Right. And so it, it wants the audience to come along, you know, and that's kind of just kind of the, the baby step or, you know, trying to slowly kind of feed you what the story is going to be and what its message is. If it, if it has any, uh, later we see like, as Will looks through the window in the backyard and we see that she's putting the pill bottle and we see her hesitation, everything that's some foreshadowing, you know, it's getting more and more obvious later. They're actually showing them the video of the cult. And it's like, why are they showing them a video of a person dying? Why even talk about their cult? It's like not in their best interest. So it's like the only narrative purpose for this to show the audience and that's like the that's like the neon flashing lights that i'm talking about it's like it wants to forsake all twistiness or mystery or surprise for a creeping dread and a sense of inevitability and i don't think that's a problem i think that their ramp up of like showing us these things is perfect for us because at the end of the day they have to entertain and tell a story you know, and and it may not make sense in the narrative, like if we were in their world or something for them to do that, but it makes sense for the audience. And I actually really, I really dug that. I kind of think that it does make sense, though. I mean, because like, I think that we've all dealt with um, friends or relatives in our lives that, you know, sort of find this new way of thinking 
that is sometimes totally different than who they were as a person five years before that, right? And the first thing they want to do when they get your friends together is to tell you, like, this is what I believe in, and this is this is why, or whatever. I, I don't think that showing that video to their friends is completely out of the, the wheelhouse for the way these people should be acting. I think it's I think they're acting like a cult member. I think that's exactly what a cult person well, would do, you know? Yeah, and I thought that too if they're trying to convert them, but they're not, they're trying to kill them and they want them as peaceful, you know, and happy as Hindu cows as possible in, in that setting so that they can basically do what they want. It, it serves them to keep reassuring them as they do in the film to not panic or have paranoia or second guess. Right. And so if their end goal is to literally kill them, which it is, and everyone else is across Los Angeles, it turns out, you know, then showing them that is really made for the audience, but it's subtle enough that I think most people aren't thinking about the motivations of them showing the video until maybe afterwards, if at all. Well, it also really sets up, um, like you said, the, the 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 end of the movie too, because Miguel's character says, "Oh, I know a lot of people." who do the invitation, right? Like it's like these people have heard about it, you know? And like, and he says that earlier in the film. Yeah. yeah, You know? And so I think that, I mean, it's a very Los Angeles kind of thing, right? That's another for shadow. Yeah. Yeah. So I found that video to be incredibly creepy too. I mean, like if I were watching that at a dinner party, I would feel very much like Claire did. And I'd be like, well, it's time to go. <laughs> yeah. just, thank you for yeah. a lovely evening. Just keep the bottle of wine and or whatever, you know. But yeah, I mean, like that. I mean, that's some some creepy shit, you know. And I, I don't know. I do like cults. I think cults are neat. <laughs> you like them from like a distance. Yes, yeah, I don't want to be like to in one. Them. Yeah, but uh, uh, let's just yeah. Uh, what did you think about the general pacing of, of the movie? Like you said earlier, like there's a lot of just dialogue and then like, you know, silent reflection and like kind of seeing people's faces. And, and that's exactly what it is. I mean, this is just like a it's like watching a play in close up, you know, I mean, so like if you're in a, a theater audience and you, you don't really get to see like every single facial expression, but this movie really does act like a piece of theater. And I like when you said you said baby steps earlier when we were talking about the coyote death, right? It's just one one baby step in a movie full of baby steps. I mean, like mm-hmm. this is like the very definition of a slow burn. And yeah, I mean, it could quite possibly be the slowest of slow burns. It takes a while to to really get started. You know, yeah, I didn't. I didn't, I never got bored. I never got impatient. No. But the one thing that really kind of took me out of it is it is built around this collection of one-on-one conversations, almost in rotation for some time. Like, uh, to me, it was captivating, but for the most part, it started to seem a bit methodical, mechanical, like, now it's your turn, into stage left, you know? It's like, so he would go outside, come back in, and every time you talk to, like, two different people, one-on-one, they'd come out, and it's just like... Okay, now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. And it's like, this person gets a dialogue piece. This one gets a monologue. And it's just like, okay, you know, uh, that's that got me out of it a little briefly. I'm like, really? Okay, who's the next person like waiting in the wings to come out for their turn? And I know? think, I mean, like, it's sort of the only way for us to get to know some of these characters and the way that they relate to each other, right? 
Um, and really, this only seems to happen to to Will. So we're seeing all of yeah. this through Will's eyes. That we know. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's a dinner party. Everyone's kind of coupling up and catching up yeah. and things like that. And we can see so that in the background natural. half the time, you know. But, but when it got so repetitive, mm-hmm. at one point I was just like, okay, who's the next person? I was like, Jesus. <laughs> Come on. But um, yeah. And then there is that, that bait and switch where uh, Choi was missing. And, you know, and then he got the voicemail and you're like, aha, this is where the movie's going to turn. And then it baits and switches and Choi shows up and he feels ashamed and it kind of resets his paranoia a little bit, you know, but yeah, I, I got a little fooled by that. Did you get fooled the first time oh, that you watched yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. I was the first time I watched this movie, I was just completely like wrapped up in it. You know, I mean, like I, the sense of dread that just like builds and builds to a paramount in this movie is, is palpable. And I mean, I kind of hate saying that cause it sounds so trite, but this, I mean, it's really what it is and that's how I felt. And so like when he finally got that um, signal on his cell phone, and then he heard that voicemail. I was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I was just it's like, a, it's an oh, my God moment. Yeah. You know, and then you have to start to think right from that moment. I'm like, OK, well, if Choi's dead, does that mean Claire's dead? You know, I mean, he felt yeah. he followed her out, you know, and so you really start to think like, like how how bad this could end up for these characters. You obviously know that something's afoot. And quite frankly, if if the movie didn't start to ramp up after that particular moment, I probably would have been pissed off. You know what I mean? Well, at that point, they're kind of trying to do with some success, almost anything's possible. Like this whole thing could be just paranoia. You know, it could end the night with him, you know, doing something crazy out of his paranoia and loss. And that could be the lesson, you know, we're going to probably learn that, you know, Claire drove off safe and sound, you know, like we don't know because I knew going in what happens at the end. I thought they were going to come across Choi's body. Yeah. You know, and so when I got the voicemail, I was like, oh, shit. Like, I, you know, I'm right. Like, they're going to find it. But then when he showed up, I was like, shit, I was wrong. Like, this is going different places or it could be, you know. So it's kind of a it's a little it's a little tease there. So I, I really like that. Yeah. There's a lot of red herrings in this movie, you know, I mean, from those people who knock on the door and he's like, oh, it's just people looking for another party. You know, I mean, that could very well have been the case. You know, I like to think that in the Hollywood Hills, there's parties every single night, you know? Yeah. And I mean, so little pieces like that, you know, but when you talk about like foreshadowing too, that that scene where Will is standing in the the house that he looks over at the bedroom and he sees Sadie standing there with no clothes from the waist down. Right. Yeah. And then she turns out to be, you know, sort of this like, like free love kind of hippie character. Right. Yeah. And that kind of reminds like the cult itself seems to be an amalgam of several cults, including heaven's gate cult who committed ritualistic suicide using phenobarbital yeah. mixed with applesauce. And then there's also hints at the open and free love, like you just mentioned aspect of the cult, which is reminiscent of Charlie Manson's cult. It's true. And then another obvious comparison is Jim Jones cult. I mean, Dr. Joseph, come on, <laughs> uh, in which the mass suicide was performed with Kool-Aid, actually flavor aid, obviously, and cyanide. Yeah. You know, so it was it was kind of an amalgam and using and putting this in that L.A. setting and and everything else. It really made it seem like it could be real, you know, the way they framed it. It's because we've seen it all before, quite literally, just not so casually with um, maybe this level of, uh, you know, I was about to say level of like wealth and education and stuff. But hell, like Scientology is a thing, you know? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, people aren't saying Scientology isn't a death cult as, as far as we know. 
Oh, I don't know. There's that one member, that guy's wife that's been missing for years, right? Like she hasn't made any public appearances and shit. She dead. Yeah. <laughs> I know that they have some weird like servantile weird shit going on, but I don't think they're a death cult specifically. Those are all death cults. And this is obviously a death cult in this movie specifically, right? Well, yeah, because I think that the, the very basis of this cult is like grieving death and, um, you know, moving past it or even sort of like moving past your own emotions in a way or letting go of your baggage is the whole point of this. But also we see from that video, they, they teach you that, you know, death is nothing to fear. In fact, we should embrace it and use it as communion, I think is the word they use to describe it in this movie. Right? It's communion. Yeah. That's an interesting word to use. I was like, why wouldn't you say like community or something else? But it's communion. What's an interesting religious, religiously loaded word, you know, yeah, to use. Because communion in a religious sense implies, you know, taking something into your body for the most part. Right. So, um, I mean, and, and most Christian religions have that. So, and that's what they're doing in that video. He, he invites that woman. He was like, come closer and breathe in, you know, like sort of like mm-hmm. breathe in the soul that she's, she's giving to us. And I, I mean, like I can see how somebody who's, who's damaged so, so much by their grief would find that to be welcoming, right? But I mean, there's a reason why cults exist and why cult leaders exist. And, you know, they, they influence so well. And then, you know, people do things like poison the wine at their dinner party, you know? Well, what do you, do you think this is more, even more of a message for like general religion? Cause the battle back and forth for like the soul of the conversation to me was like, you know, Eden basically saying, I don't have to have pain and suffering and regret about my son's death anymore because i'm going to be with him yeah you know and um you know this is all about us you know removing all our pain because i can just in a second be with him or whatever and that goes for many religions you know what the you know the main one that comes to mind for me being christianity and Mm -hmm. of course he's saying no you need to feel it you need it it's real it's here in this world and this reality and you need to feel it and you need to acknowledge it you know and i think there's interesting case on both sides based on you know whatever you believe and you know and i agree too i mean i i didn't really like get some of the the more like mainstream religious qualities of this movie until the second viewing um like i said i was so wrapped up in like trying to figure out you know when the when the cult stuff was going to happen and and following all this like foreshadowing and like foreboding building in the movie but there really is a lot of like christian religious qualities of the cult that they belong to or the invitation and when they specifically say that they're going to be in paradise with all of their friends and family but a lot of these cults are kind of some of these death cults are offshoots of christianity some uh, of them are you know basically rejoining aliens or whatever but you know you 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 do see this kind of common theme in some of them with where they're kind of this extreme offshoot of Christianity where they become a death cult. Yeah. I mean like Jim Jones for sure. You yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. I mean that was, he had churches, you know, all I up and down were, the East coast, yeah. the West coast. You I know? think they were like an offshoot of Presbyterianism. Mm-hmm. So, fact. I mean, it, it just went from something mainstream to just something, you know, a little off kilter, but yeah. But you know, they're, they do kind of present us with some meaning, like with the red lantern and seeing all the other lit lanterns across Los Angeles to me it added context like they had their own personal trauma and tragedy and everything that had befallen them but 
seeing all those other lanterns, it added context and perspective and almost a kind of solidarity all in one shot. And I think that's a really good example of visual storytelling. Uh, it's extremely horrifying, but almost like gratifying in a sick way. Like they're not alone. They're intensely private hell isn't so private anymore nope there's a kind of solace in that yeah so when i when i watched this movie for the very first time and i i think i watched it last year for the first time so it was really late to the game i knew nothing about it i knew yeah. I, I didn't know it was about cults i really just all i knew was that a man was going to dinner at his ex-wife's house and like shenanigans happen you know yeah. and <laughs> yeah. so like by the time that they got to the very end of this movie where we're seeing just the, the red lights all over the hollywood hills i mean i found that to be completely jaw-dropping chilling yeah yeah i was just like just shocked and and chilled and scared you know because this could very easily happen in real life to me. You know how many people bought the fucking secret, you know? Yeah. And it doesn't take a lot for people to, to fall under this kind of spell and you take these things back to your home and follow out through these plans. And just all the number of red lights that we saw combined with the quiet of the backyard, with all the sirens and helicopters in the background, I was just like, that really is chaos i mean can you imagine what it's like to live in a world where that happened the night before you know you wake up to see this shit in the news it almost be like the snapping from the avengers or something where like half of all <laughs> life is gone or something and be like you know oh my god i hope i will always refer to that now <laughs> the snapping <laughs> Jesus. I'd like to think that anything that widespread, you know, you have enough people that are like, uh, nope, I'm noping right out on this when it comes to killing my friends and everything else that it's going to get to the news. It's going to be leaked to, you know, FBI, who's already looking at this cult, I'm sure, at some yeah. point, you know, but and, and even if it was, I don't think it would be that widespread. I don't, I, th- I don't think you could look across the landscape and see all these, maybe like one or two, but it would be like a national thing. Right. And you, you know, this is probably a national thing. Like there's other cities. Oh right? yeah. I, in this movie, but I'm sure it would be like, you know, you know, even if it's just like a, a couple hundred per major city or something, that's huge. Yes. You know, yes, that's it is. thousands of people that are dead. Right. Um, did this, did the movie kind of remind you of Midsummer at all? And it's kind of what it was trying to say. Yeah. I mean, so, um, I mean, I, by the time that I had seen Midsummer this year, I'd already seen The Invitation. And so, um, and yeah. then I had already seen Hereditary too. And while I was watching Midsummer, I was thinking about both this movie and Hereditary. And I was like, my God, we're having so many movies that are coming out, you know, quote unquote horror movies that are about grief and loss. There's so much of it. It seems like everywhere I turn. And that's not now, anything you know? new, but no. these things are saying th- really specific things about them. You know, like as far as like our conversation about loss, like I'm not sure there's a message in the invitation about loss other than it's something that you don't have a choice to deal with. It's inescapable trying to hide it or even, you know, give it your own meaning through suicide is disingenuous and, and just as meaningless, if not more so, if anything, it compounds the tragedy, right? Midsummer dealt with this in, in a really different way. Um, I think both share themes of loss and how to deal with it, but the, the invitation shows like you've lost their way in the search for the meaning of their loss versus Midsummer shows how people, you know, have learned to deal with their loss through shared empathy and solace and community and the need for that. But both films feature a death cult of sorts. Yeah, that's true. They do. 
Um, I mean, and I just, I mean, I think that when it comes to loss or grief, I think that everyone has to go through that in their own particular way. I think that no one is really hardwired to go through grief the same way that, you know, a spouse would do. And that's why this movie to me is so interesting is that these two people ultimately had to grieve the loss of their son in different ways. It was so apparent that they could not even be together anymore. Right. Yeah. And it seems like throughout this movie, each of them is trying to force the other one into their idea of, of grief. Right. So you have Eden saying like, no, you should let it go, you know, and then, you know, sort of like plan on seeing our child in the afterlife and live your life in a sort of pain-free environment. And he's like, no, you have to feel the pain. And they're just back and forth the whole time, you know, and I'm like, and no one way is correct. You know, everyone well, does it in their own particular way. I would say that she was incorrect and that she was disingenuous about it. Like she still had to deal with it. She got to the point where she, she was suicidal, couldn't deal and was basically getting into this cult. Like she would be taking Xanax or something, you know, like trying to just put it somewhere that wasn't her. And, you know, he was correct in that she has to deal with it. Eventually, yes, you have to find hope. You have to have a path forward. But putting that and surrounding it in death, you know, and and everything else that she was doing specifically was was very disingenuous. And, he, and she acknowledged that. She showed the hesitation. It was foreshadowed. And eventually she apologized for it. And I think the I think the narrative was correct to do so for her story. I mean, and, and I don't I don't think it's wrong for people to who are experiencing this particular thing to go out and maybe try to find new ways to deal with it. Like if, if you, of course if, not. Yeah. If you're not, if you're not doing it very well on your own, you know, of, and, yeah. and some people just have a hard time putting it into words, you know? And so I'm, I mean, I don't know. I just I, don't take it too far in one direction. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean like, don't, <laughs> don't try to poison people to, to like, you know, find peace in your life, obviously. But I mean, I just, to me, I, I really can't decide which of these three movies I think deals with grief and loss in, in a better way. I, I like them all individually for their different meanings. You know, I think that like what we see in Midsummer is not quite how people in America deal with grief. You know, I, I don't think that, you know, it takes a village to get to get over that sort of thing. I think it's we're taking sort of, it too far in a direction, right? Yeah, it's like yeah. they're taking it way too far in like shared experience, you know, which is important. And there was, it was kind of beautiful to see it, but it takes it too far, you know, and like the committing suicide because you're feeling too much is taking it too far, but then like killing all your family and friends <laughs> outside of yourself <laughs> is taking it too far in that direction. So it's like balance, you know, it's like, yeah, you need other people to help you. You need things. And sometimes you need medication to help you. You know, sometimes hitting a, a wall is helpful, you know, but, you know, killing everyone or yourself is not the answer. Well, and I think, too, I mean, like we see we get to see in these in these four characters of David, Eden, Pruitt and Sadie, like sort of the, the differences between the different members of this particular cult. Right. Um, Pruitt acts in a very calm way throughout the movie. Like he very calmly tries to strangle somebody, right? He's trying to strangle Will in that theater room and he's like, just let go, you know, and he's very calm about it. And then you have Sadie, who's obviously like hypersexual. And when she's hitting on Will outside by the pool, she even like says, you know, like you can hit me. Let's like, she's saying, let's fuck. She's like, oh, and if you want to, you can beat the shit out of me while you fuck me. You know what I mean? So like people are obviously dealing with their own individual loss, like in their own ways. Right. I just think that the yeah. group that they, 
join happens to welcome everybody and lets them all experience what they want. Well, they were to. saying like everything that you're experiencing is okay. And you know what? You don't have to deal with it anymore because you can do this, you know? And it's just, it, you know, that's what a cult does. It, you know, takes advantage of, of vulnerable, vulnerable people. I mean, and, and, and turns it for the worst. So I'm just one of those people. I, I don't really ascribe to things that are like sort of new agey, you know, I know these things work for a lot of people and this is no shade. I have friends who meditate and things like that, you know, but like the, those sort of things just don't, don't really work for me. Like I'm more, I'm more of a will really. Like I, I feel the need to like talk through my feelings and emotions mm-hmm. ad nauseum. And, you know, at, mostly I'm sure people would get tired of it at the end of the day, but I mean, I get it. Yeah. So what did you think about like the look and the feel and the, and the sound of this movie? I think this movie was very well made. I think that, um, I mean, you know that I like movies that have a very limited, you know, set, you know, and, and this is, it's just one house for the most part, a really big house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, and it has a smallish cast. So, I mean, like this sort of like things that I like in horror movies. Um, I really like, some of the flashback sequences, I thought they were well done. And I think that they were edited nicely into the movie. And it was interesting, like anything like in the past having to do with sun was kind of like cool colors at the beginning. They're dealing with cool colors driving to the house. But once they get into the house, it's dark, but yeah. warm, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it was very interesting choice. Um, every time he kind of steps out away from the party, he's outside by the pool or whatever. And it's, you're back in the cool colors, kind of like a, you know, an exhale for the audience, you know, and just kind of, it reminds me of sunshine a little bit where you could not get away from all of those warm tones. So as soon as you were in the ship, you know, it was all those cool tones, you know, it was just like very oppressive in the contrast. And they're almost doing something with that, that palette here. So I think everything was very intentionally designed and done and the way it was filmed. Um, I think the music was superb. Um, I really loved it. It was by Theodore Shapiro. Um, who's actually very prolific in film scoring, just not any huge like hits or biggies, you know, like, but he has a huge resume. I think the score works really, really well for the film, but to me, it's also extremely reminiscent of the score for the film enemy. Have you seen that? With oh. Dennis Villeneuve, uh, who just did like Blade Runner. He's going to do the new Dune. That's oh, coming wait. out. Is that the one with, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal? Yeah. 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 I've seen that movie. So uh, it came out two years earlier and it was composed by uh, Daniel Benzi and Sonder Jurians. And I'm wondering if they used the enemy soundtrack as a temp track, because I'm thinking this composer just didn't branch out much from it because it reminded me of it a lot. And uh, if I can, if I can put both in, I'll, uh, I'll compare them for you. So here's a, here's a little snippet from the invitation. And here's a snippet from Enemy. To me, they sound extremely, extremely similar in some of their like themes. So I don't know. Um, I liked it, regardless of if there's any kind of you know copying going on. I thought it worked really, really well. I think the design overall for the film was amazing. I have no complaints. I think as far as the score goes, I need to like listen to it outside of the movie. This is probably one that I should put my headphones in and listen to because whenever I watch The Invitation, I find myself to be completely wrapped up in like the human drama that's going on. And I really don't 
I didn't notice any outside things like that, you know, like, it's, like I, I could not, if I heard a snippet of that score outside of the movie, I probably wouldn't be able to tell you where it came from. You it's know? Very, yeah. It's, it's not something you can really easily whistle as you're coming out of the theater. Right. It's something that's very intrinsic to the, like woven into the film. It's, it's, it's not meant to take you out of it at all. Uh, there are no real themes there. It's very atmospheric. So, and it's, it does exactly what it should. I think so. that, Karin Kusama is a fantastic director. I think that she has a real eye for camera work and and things like that. And I I I really think that she puts a lot of thought into a screenplay when she's given one. She knows mm-hmm. exactly what she wants her movie to look like. And I I think that her movies look different, you know? Like I I can't really sit down and watch a movie and be like, "Oh, that's Karin Kusama," you know? I think that she she brings something new to every story that she tells. And I think that I mean and, and and even most of the stories that she tells, even though they're not quite horror movies, all of them have some sort of like dark undertone to it. And mm-hmm. I think that she's just a really good voice in in modern horror, modern cinema. Uh, Destroyer, I thought, was a, a fantastic movie. Not at all horror, rarely, barely even horror adjacent, you know. But I, it's just like I think she's a fantastic director, yeah. and I, I don't think that she gets the credit that she's due. Mostly, I think that a lot of people wrote off Jennifer's Body as like some sort of like schlock teen horror movie, and um, you know, I think that if you if you really think that, I encourage you to go back and give it a second watch. Yeah, and, I'm gonna have to give it a second watch because I didn't think much of it the first time I saw it. I really liked like the first half or whatever, and just fell apart for me in the second half. I just, I mean, I I have things to say about that horror movie too, but you know, we'll we'll save that discussion for another episode, perhaps sometime. But yeah. I'm I have to say that second viewing of the invitation to me is. Um, I, I didn't I didn't really like the movie as much as I liked it the first time. And a lot of really? that may may have to do with with the, you know, knowing what the twist was, because like I said, I, I went into this movie completely blind the first time. I knew, See, nothing I, about I knew it, it going in. Yeah. You know, and I was just kind of had middle of the road expectations because, because of that, because I knew it was going to happen, uh-huh. you know, but I just really enjoyed, you know, you know, how character centric and, you know, dialogue heavy it was and and how intimate it felt. Um, oh. And I really liked that. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I I love the movie for all of those reasons. You know, I just think that, um, and and that's not to say I won't watch this movie for a third time because I probably will because I I noticed a lot of small details that I didn't see the first time around. Cause like I said, I was so wrapped up in all the human drama and whatnot. Yeah. Um. What do you think about these gay characters? Because um, we have a little barrier gaze moment in this movie too, right? Yeah. I don't. I think they get a pass. Uh, because so many other people die, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, but honestly, God, uh, that character uh, who survives. Tommy. Uh, what's his, Tommy. Yeah. At the first half of the movie, I was just like, oh my God, what a fucking Chad, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I hate saying that because like, like now that I know that Chad is like associated with like incels, like it hurts me to even like say that, but I'm like. God, why did I just think that? But it's like, what a fucking Chad. And then I realized, and then as soon as I found out he was gay, I was like, oh, he's fine. <laughs> so I'm like, God, oh damn God it. he's such a hypocrite. My internal no. fucking biases are like totally at work here. And but he redeems himself through the evening. You know, he has that one-on-one chat, you know, and then later on he's, you know, he basically helps them survive. And he ends up being a survivor, even though he had to witness his own husband's death or boyfriend's death or whatever they were. Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be safe to call him partner. I think they've been together for a while, at least you can tell based on their interaction with each other and their friends, right? But I think that 
we oftentimes as gay people, I think what, what you hear from a lot of us is saying that we want to have gay characters in movies just be there for no, you know, they don't have to be gay for a reason. Right. And I think this movie sort of gives us that we have a gay yeah. couple and there's no explanation as to why they're gay or why they're hanging out with a bunch of straight people. None of that is an issue, you know, and they're and just there. It's all incidental, which I loved. Yeah. And then, you know, especially since at first I thought he was just some trashy, <laughs> some like trashy, like straight guy. <laughs> but, you know, uh, it turned out he was just like a really cocky, you know, guy to begin with, whether he's gay or straight. Well, you know? and, and, and he kind of redeems himself through the night a little bit. And then later, Later on, um, they give him that moment that where he's able to have revenge on the dude because that's the first person they essentially kill outside of the person that was poisoned, you know, who actually ended up drinking was Gina. But it was his boyfriend Miguel or husband Miguel or whatever they are, um, who he shoots in the back for and Miguel was trying is a basically a doctor, I guess, and he's trying to help, you know. And he's trying to to work on Gina and he was trying to work on Sadie before that. And you know, he shoots him right in the back, cold blood. And that's what, you know, when the movie basically turns on that dime, you know, is when they're basically start killing everyone. This is the first one to go. And it's just like, you saw him react and it was just horrible. And he gets that moment of revenge where he gets to stab the guy to death, you know. And that's, and that's great comeuppance. And I think, yeah. I think once the, once the shit hits the fan in this movie, you know, and people start to die in really rapid succession, it's, it's shocking and it's sad and it's scary, mostly because we, for the most part, have a cast of characters that I find to be very likable, you know, like I, I liked s- Claire. Yeah, I liked I like all of them. I could see myself hanging out with these people, you know, yeah. I mean, outside of the cult members, you know, um, for the most, I mean, but like the, the Tommy and Miguel, I think are great characters. I think they're fun. I think that Gina is a fun loving person. They all seem to like interact well with each other and I like them. And so I don't, I don't want to see any of them die. And unfortunately we do. Well, like Eden and Sadie, I would have just been like, if, if I had met them in real life, I'd be like, you could just tell something's wrong on Eden's face. Like even with everything's perfect for sure. Fine. And then Sadie is just a fucking hot mess, you know, and <laughs> I would just start like, to finish it. right on out of there. I'm like, nope, I didn't have no time in my life for people like you guys. <laughs> like, so thankfully, um, I don't have a lot of friends who throw dinner parties or anything. So, I mean, I would, I don't know. I think I've reached an age now and I don't live in Los Angeles, so I don't have to be very social. But if I get invitations, I have no problems just saying no to begin with. <laughs> oh, I'm seriously going to go back and I'm going to look at that invitation and I'm going to make carbon fucking copies of it. I'm going to send that out for my next dinner party. Sure. Oh, I love it. That's great. <laughs> oh, my I'm God. totally doing it. Get some really good wine. Show us some creepy ass video. Actually, you know what? It sounds like a really fun dinner party and I'll probably come. <laughs> RSVP now. Okay. <laughs> so I've got some fun facts-ish. Okay. Okay. Lay them on me. So in May 2012, it was announced that Luke Wilson, Zachary Quinto, Topher Grace, and Johnny Galecki had initially been scheduled to star in the film. (laughs) (laughs) So different. Topher Grace and Zachary Quinto, I guess they would have been like the gay couple. Luke Wilson and Johnny Galecki would have been like the, I don't know. Like that's so weird. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm so happy that it ended up being like Logan Marshall green and, you know, uh, Mikheil, uh, houseman, 
you know, with that, because they were they were really interesting. That kind of brings me to my next fun fact where they're kind of like evil counterparts, right? David and Will. Uh, yeah. They were both kind of visited by tragedy and both have long hair and beards. And they're both kind of wearing these great grayish green shirts or whatever. They were like evil twins in a way, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's like... Sad, sad bro summer. Is that what's going on in this movie? <laughs> but also kind of more than one way, like he was the replacement, right? Oh, yeah. So it was just, uh, it was really interesting. There were some like weird just drops between the two where like David's like, it's my house. <laughs> and I found that to be so infuriating too. I mean, I can, I mean, obviously like we're, we're meant to empathize with Will the most in this particular movie, you know, um, but it's got to be so incredibly awkward to be in this position, you know? Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder how often Both it positions. actually happens in real life. Yeah. For either one of them, you know, I mean, like, I don't know. How often do you think you have to go hang out with your ex-wife and her new husband? You know, I'm like, yeah, oh. what, what, what freaked me about him? Like that. It, and it's probably part of like that visual storytelling that they're doing, you know, it's like, so when he first meets, um, uh, Will and Kira or whatever, he like touches their faces, you know, like, I'm so glad you're here. And I'm like, hands off. Like, <laughs> we have what? so much to talk about tonight. It's going to be a great night. Personal so much to talk bubble. about. Personal bubble. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see them squirming, you know, like. Well, so, and I, I gather that, that Will and David had met before, right? Obviously his wife was in a group and she must have sort of left him for David, right? Is that what we're led to believe? I think they left each other. Okay. You know, like she, like they had to move on in their different ways. I feel like that's pretty common in that kind of situation. Yeah, I would agree. You know, and, um, you know, then that's when she went to Mexico and he, you know, moved on with his life and it's been two years, you know? And so I think they went through their process. They were obviously still friendly, you know, uh, otherwise you know, if they if they had you know ended spectacularly horrible, they wouldn't have gotten an invitation. You know, um, I know we've we've already moved on to fun facts, but ha- another really cr- crushing blow to me, like inner character wise, is when uh, Kira's having that conversation with Will toward the end of the movie, and he was just like, "I love you, but I don't think you can help me." Yeah. God, how soul crushing would that be to hear from your partner? <laughs> like, I just... well, you know, but it kind of goes back to what you were saying is that he's dealing with it. He's talking it, it out, you know, he's saying, yeah. I am not okay. It literally said that word for word. I'm yep. not okay. You know, and I think she understands that there's context, right? He's in literally in the house where, you know, it happened essentially. And he's having all these emotions with like his ex-wife is there. You know, she's not dealing with things. He's bringing everything to the surface, you know, and I think she understood that and she just had to get out of that moment and, you know, fine. You know, I would have liked for her to be like, you know, that's okay. We can talk about it later. You know, I understand that this moment is particularly difficult for you. Yeah. So I'm just going to go back inside. But she just, she like let him be alone. You know, yeah, she walked she back inside. She didn't turn it into a fight. And I think that yeah. he sort of like redeems himself as, as a, a spouse to her at the end of the movie when he sort of grabs her and says, no, we are going to survive. We're going to do whatever it takes to survive. Yeah. Right? And I wondered, you know, if the movie had ended a little bit differently, how their relationship would be, because I can just see her. You know, like she would have been like, like, this is a lot of baggage. I just went through hell tonight because of your fucking baggage. Like, what the fuck? Versus going out and seeing the rest of L.A. essentially on fire with those red lanterns. You know, it's it like, again, it puts it all into perspective and context. And it's like we 
have some solidarity here, I feel like the relationship is going to move forward almost partly because of that. Like, you know, we survived this God, together. And you know, as far as and we were talking like foreshadowing all through this episode too, but that, that conversation they have outside is kind of foreshadowing as well. Cause he's like, I love you, but I don't think you can help me. And she does. She's the one who helps him survive. Yep. And he's she being strangled dude, to yeah. death and she comes and bludgeons the guy to death. <laughs> so yep. yes, she can help you. So stop saying all that nonsense. <laughs> I just on. know they probably had just wanted to work the tire iron in there somehow. So they just had to give her a fireplace poker instead. Shit. What a strong <laughs> character she is. I love it. She's a yeah. great character. In, in a movie with really good characters. I can't say that enough. So. It would have been great if they did bring the tire iron in. Like, we have to watch this now or whatever. And then like leave it <laughs> yeah. in there so she could use that as the murder weapon later. So it could have gone full circle on that foreshadowing at the beginning with a bookend. But whatever, that would have been a little too much. So I understand why. But. Maybe if I had written it, I would have had him being strangled. And then she comes over and hits him in the head. And while he's like dying on the ground, a coyote like leaps into the backyard or something. And, like, <laughs> That's too much. See? See how far I can take this shit. <laughs> <laughs> so um my next fun fact is more of a depressing fact Aww. and that is that it uses the the sad old trope that i hate that i just keep seeing it doesn't fall away like we see like uh bury your gaze like falling off we don't see that as much anymore you know we're, or we're getting passes versions of those but what i keep seeing is the depraved bisexual right sadie uh, Eden and David, really, but mainly Sadie, um, you know, the friend from um, from Mexico, kisses both male and female guests, um, you know, making, you know, brittle sounding pronouncements of love. Who um, does she kiss? Oh, she kisses Gina. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I remember now. She sexually propositions Will, you know, using the offer of, you know, hitting her as enticement. And then she becomes completely unhinged in the climax, attacking Will and Tommy and killing Gina. You know, it's like, you know, they, I just saw Dracula on um, Netflix. Netflix. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, they kind of make Dracula kind of a depraved bisexual a little bit. And, I, you know, I just see this all over the place. And it's like always the bisexual girl or the bisexuals, like they're they're depraved. They like everything. Once they like both, they like everything. You know, they're naughty, you know, and they're crazy. <laughs> and it's just like, and I didn't, I, granted, I didn't pay much attention to this trope before, you know, I met Matt, who is bisexual. And it really fucking bothers him. Either you don't believe someone's bisexual or they're fucking depraved, you know? And it's like, come on. like. <laughs> I mean, maybe I just don't pay attention enough to it. You know, but I mean, it completely makes sense when you're talking about it right now, because she is like the most unhinged character in this movie. Right. Yeah. And she's the only like. And she's the well, she's the only overtly sexual one, too. So, I mean, not I, you can talk about depravity in a sense of like like violence or whatnot, but um, like she's really the only character that's free with her. Oh, you hit me. <laughs> she's She's free with her own sexuality and, you know, she's, I do what I want, you know, whatever. And I mean, I don't think that's depraved. I think that's actually sounds pretty freeing, you know, but uh, I feel like you're going to bend over a little far for her. Like if this is the woman that was like, screaming silently into the mirror, you know, they, they really did make her crazy. <laughs> yeah, they did. I know. <laughs> but um, my, my last little bits, um, I would say 
are the things that were left hanging, right? So like early in the evening, there's a knock at the door answered by David. And he claims that there are just some like prospective party goers searching for the correct house, even though it's noted that it's kind of a remote location. And so if they were searching, they'd probably die of dehydration hiking around for a party, right? Um, I don't know what that means. I mean, it's the Hollywood fucking hills, right? But whether or not like it was an innocuous visit as David claimed it was or something else is never revealed. And I love that it's not revealed. It adds some mystery to the movie. You know, it's like, it made me think about why Pruitt was there, right? Is he actually a friend from Mexico like Sadie or is he there for a reason, right? Is he there to be the muscle? He doesn't have family and friends there. So they have roles for people. Is he there to just make sure everything goes smoothly? Are there people coming down the street being, Hey, you're one of the houses on our list. Is everything going okay? Do you need any help? Do you want us to move this fucking car in a dead body for you? Like what, <laughs> what, you know, like what's, what's going on? I don't know. And I, I don't, I mean, they obviously don't have to explain any of those things. I think a lot of, a lot of it, I think, is sort of self-explanatory, or you take from that what you want, right? And I, I think you're right. I think that that leads to a, a much better story. I have to agree with you when it comes to Pruitt, though. I think that he didn't have any family or friends to speak of, and so either they just invited him to their home out of the kindness of their hearts. But why would you know? I, I think that the the latter is probably the the better idea of what he's there for. He's there to help them kill people. Right. Yeah, you're held there to help the hosts. If you don't have anyone, you know, you can either join them or you can help the hosts in like a specific role. It, it's interesting to me. Or it could have been people. I think on faculty, I was listening to their take on the invitation, and I think it's been a while, but I think they their theory was that it was actually people escaping from another house asking for help. But I think that would have been louder. The guy was whispering at the door, right? He yeah. was kind of hushed tones at the door, and I really think that must have been other people being like, "Hey, do you need assistance?" Do you need help you know is everything going okay yeah I, I have to agree with that too i i don't think that i think it was either people lost and i mean i know the hollywood hills it's not that remote there's houses all over the place yeah. you know but um, behind so, gates and everything of course right but. so i mean like you, you can't really get through the gate to knock on the door unless you have access to the gate already mm-hmm. you know right? yeah. and so i mean the thing i think there's that but i and whenever David is sort of introducing Pruitt when he arrives. He's very just matter of fact about it. This is my friend, you know, this is my friend. Um, but when Sadie sees him, she sort of like jumps into his arms, you know? So obviously these people have a history together yeah, and that's true. some, some may be closer than others, but I mean, I really do think that the two of them were just there to, um, make, make the night happen successfully because ultimately at the end of the night, everybody was supposed to die, correct? Including Pruitt, Sadie, and Eden and David. I think maybe after or something, but they didn't yeah. get a chance to drink. But I don't know. Like, that's the only way it makes sense is for them to die too. Right. Because of their own goals. But at the same time, like, I'd almost want to see like a mini series. You know, or, you know, like an um, anthology series about different people's houses during that same night. Yes. Because I would love to see, like, okay, are there people walking around out there to make sure people don't escape from these houses? Like, are there people outside waiting to, like, fucking put people, take people out? You know, obviously Pruitt had to go out there and take care of um, Claire. But it's like, how big does this get? What's the level of communication besides the Red Lantern? You know, they're obviously putting up, like... um Wi-Fi, you know, like signal, you know, instead of the signal repeater, it would be like a signal killer, right? For mm-hmm. cell phones and stuff. You know, it's like, how how deep does this get? How widespread? Like, what's what's another aspect to it that we can at least hint at? I don't want everything explained because I think that's the best part of this. 
but it would be interesting to see slightly different takes at different houses during this time. Yeah, well, and people's methodology, too, I think would be fascinating to see because Eden and David, have they chose to poison. If, if, if their plan had gone through to fruition, they would have just poisoned them and they would have been quietly dead. But when they're standing in the backyard and they're starting to notice, like, you know, what the fuck is going on in Los Angeles, you could hear screams and shit in the background. So, I mean, God knows what's going on in these other houses. And I would love yeah. to get just a peek behind the curtain, you know? So we see like in in another way, um, I feel like, you know, just like I said, this might have had something to do with some some sort of inspiration for Get Out. It also gives me some some thinking that there was some inspiration for us as well. Right. Because it, it starts in that that low focus. It was just us. And then it and then it basically blows up to it's happening everywhere. And so I'm I'm really thinking that this film inspired both of Jordan Peele's horror movies. In yeah, that's interesting. I wish that I mean, if I wish he would, I haven't heard him talk about it at all in interviews or things like that. But I, I don't think it's so far fetched to think that he might have been influenced by this movie. I, I think that a lot of people were kind of influenced by this movie. Definitely Ari Aster. I think that yeah. has made two two movies about grief and loss that came after this one, and I'm sure that watching it had some sort of effect on him. I mean, the first time I watched The Invitation, I was profoundly affected by it. We might be at some sort of beginning of a subgenre, just like, you know, maybe when you're in the middle of it, like in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, of what happened with Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween and, you know, all of those. Like, if we're kind of at the birth of this, you know, grief loss cycle in Mm -hmm. horror that these are starting and we can kind of connect it to just like black Christmas. We can connect all of these things kind of to the invitation a little bit. I don't know. Well, I mean, I know that there have been other horror movies. Oh, definitely. Grief and loss, you know, but if we're getting so many in succession, we're getting kind of a string, yeah. you know what I mean? There's, there's got to be something going on in, you know, American society that's influencing these people to make these movies as well. So I think it'd be really neat to try to figure out like what, in you know the the current zeitgeist or whatever you want to say is 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 making them make movies like this you know yeah it's this is interesting because i doubt like in the in you know the 70s and 80s people in the middle of it would have said oh this is a huge subgenre you know or whatever versus in the 90s and 2000s and stuff it's easier to look back and point back and say here's the line of this and this is what we call it versus mm-hmm. right now it's very interesting to see are we too close to it to to see a pattern it's interesting yep. but anyway I digress. Ten years down the line, I think we'll all be sitting around talking about the, you know. <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it's a little too subtle of a genre, probably, to to, to say. But, well, I don't know. We'll see. But uh, my next thing is, of course, the, the left hanging is uh, what happened to Claire, right? Mm-hmm. We obviously think that she was killed by Pruitt. Um, she leaves early. We see Pruitt move his car for her to leave, but then stop just out of our view before she can take off in her Prius. I mean, she has, she's in her car, she's driving it. Right. So she has power enough to like get out of the way, but uh, she's never mentioned again. Uh, Even though I kind of half expected Choi to mention her car was still there when he arrived or something, but we actually know. So word of God, which of course means Karen, you know, Karen Kusama. uh, She actually stated that Pruitt did kill her. So we know. And there's a deleted scene where he pulls her out of the car and she's um, gasping and bleeding out in the grass. Oh, thank God I didn't see that, though. That's, they need to cut that from the movie. I, yeah. No, there's a deleted scene. Yeah. Um, I don't know that it's on any Blu-ray, but they know that it's a scene they deleted. I don't think it's actually included on anything. I don't think anyone's ever going to see it. But she did say it was cut. 
And I mean, I always assumed that she was dead too. I didn't, I didn't think that anybody was going to leave that party alive. You know, mm-hmm. at least that was, that was the intention. And so I, I, I'm glad that that scene was cut from the movie. I think that would have cheapened it a little bit and it sort of would have ruined the surprise at the end. <laughs> yeah. You know, 2020 first episode, we now have four questions and let's start <laughs> with what would you rate out of five stars? The invitation. I'm definitely rating it a four out of five. Good. That's what I put in letterbox too. I originally, the first time I watched it, rated this movie a four point five. Um, on this initial viewing, I don't, I don't know why I liked it just a smidge less. I think maybe because I had seen it before and I knew some of the twists and turns a little bit. Um, but I knocked it down to a four, so okay. I am right there with you. I think this is a solid movie. I, I, I like it for its really dramatic aspects, and I like the fact that I mean. You know, and this leads into my next question. I think there's a lot of horror going on in this movie from start to finish. So in the spirit of that, Chris, do you think The Invitation is a horror movie? Yeah. I mean, like a lot of psychological thrillers to me are more adjacent than others, right? So like I just saw Joker, for instance. And to me, that's much, much less of a horror movie than The Invitation, Mm-hmm. Right. And a lot of that is just like the vibe and what's constantly happening and the creeping dread and everything else. I feel like Joker, for instance, was more of a drama. Uh, it had a lot more of a just a straight drama aspect to it than it was like um, a psychological thriller. Right. And so to me, this very much is a horror thriller just because, you know, of the of the nature of it, of, you know, the heightened realism, you know, in the, um, the, the, the situation that we're in with taking something so real world and like twisting it and putting it, plopping it down and making it so real and visceral, you know, there's, there's definitely horror and, and being horrified quite literally at the end of it, you know, just kind of solidifies that to me, this is a, this is definitely a horror thriller, definitely a horror movie. Yeah. And when people say psychological thriller, I just, you know, I think to myself, well, that's just a subgenre of horror, you know, I mean, but this movie is definitely, you know, it's got some horror adjacency going on. I think what really cements it into horror territory, like we had talked about before is sort of like this ratcheting tension that's going Going on through this movie and it really does crescendo into this like really violent moment and um in ways that you know only horror movies can really do so i think squarely yeah. squarely it belongs in the horror genre well and there's yeah and there's like some stalker elements in it you know like um slasher a little bit elements in it there's just a bunch of there's like a smattering of other kind of horror subgenres in it you know and i feel like all of these are semantics they're you know umbrella terms and stuff but and that's why we say horror is such a huge overarching gigantic umbrella over all of these other subgenres psychological thriller a lot of the time can be used as like a scapegoat term to say oh my film's not really horror you know as we've seen right. you know or mystery or something like that but they all have ties um, you know, we just talked about M. Night Shyamalan being a dickhole about it, you know, <laughs> where his films are horror, you know, versus like Joker to me, I, you know, if the director wanted to say it was horror, I might actually disagree with him, you know? So I don't know. It just depends on the film. I need to see that movie. You know? Oh my God. Um, yeah. And I mean, let's not forget too, that cults are scary, you know? And so, I mean, so the, we've seen them in movies like Rosemary's baby, which also had incredible moments of paranoia in it. So oh, yeah. <clears throat> I think if we're going to call Rose, Rosemary's baby, a horror movie, I think we can easily call the invitation a horror movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, were you scared while watching this? 
Um, you know, I, I definitely felt tension. I don't know that I was scared. Um, I had that creeping dread. So yeah. Maybe that's all part of the uh, maybe that's all part of the umbrella of scared. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I d- definitely felt tension. Yeah, I mean, and uh, same. You know, like I, I've said before on the podcast that I am usually very scared at a lot of things that I watch. I find myself getting scared very easily. I wasn't quite as scared in this one, but I think that the the ending of this movie is so incredibly shocking that, I mean, I, I know at that particular moment, once I realized, you know, sort of what was going on, yeah, I, I felt a little scared, yeah. you know, so, I mean, it works on that particular level. All right, so finally, and some might say most importantly, uh, who's the hottest guy in The Invitation? To me, it's kind of easy. Uh, you might expect me to say it's between like Logan Marshall Green and you know Mikiel or whatever. Um, you know Mikiel uh, Houseman, mm-hmm. but to me, it's always going to be Logan Marshall Green. Really? Yeah, yeah. I think that he's super dreamy, um, <laughs> especially in Upgrade. I don't know, just something about him in Upgrade. I'm just like so incredibly attracted to him. But honestly, I wouldn't say no to almost any of the guys in this movie. Honestly. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I love Logan Marshall Green. I think he's super, super hot. But to me, he's not the hottest guy in this movie. I think the hottest guy in this movie is Miguel, and I, I don't know that actor's name. I'm trying to look it up. Yeah, it's I thought like, Miguel was. Very attractive. I almost said him too. Yeah. Yeah. He's so cute. Yeah. And like a, and a doctor. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. Yeah. He's like, Oh, that's phenobarbital. I'm like, Oh my God. He probably has pills at home too. Yes. Yeah, uh, Jordi uh, Villasuso. And I'm probably fucking butchering that, but he's super cute. So that's my pick. I mean, in other Logan Marshall green movies, I would have chosen him, but there's just something about, Oh my God. He was on Buffy. Huh? As someone named Dixon. And an episode Who? called Primeval. Miguel? Yeah. Oh my god. I don't remember him. I guess he's a passing character because it's not mentioned in the synopsis of the episode. But he's super handsome. <clears throat> in fact, I mean, the other guy from uh, Tommy, his character was really hot too. I was like, by god, what a really attractive gay couple. It's like, it makes me... Well, me and my husband are not the most attractive gay couple, apparently. We just should not move to Los Angeles if that's what all the gay people look like. Well... Yeah. Well, well, apparently he's also in the Young and the Restless and Days of Our Lives, so he's kind oh, of a soap yeah. opera actor. But so he he's did really he's well. Meant, he's meant to be pretty. Yeah. <clears throat> Logan Marshall Green would have won if he just kept that beard shaved off through the movie. I don't know. With the scene where he's in the bathtub with uh, Eden, right, and he's sort of like clean shaven, but his hair was a little long and wet. I was like that. Well, you have a long history right of not liking beards, so. I don't know. Every time I see a really thick beard, the first thing that pops into my head is, "My God, that must stink." You know, but what? I assume, I assume they don't. I mean, just that much hair. Your husband you know, I'm had a like, beard. It didn't stink. I'm talking like Duck Dynasty kind of beards. Oh. You know what I mean? Like not the kind of beard he had in this movie, but like I mean, it like gets really, showered when they shower. Like what are you talking? I don't know. I'm just like I just can't imagine like a whole bunch of shit getting stuck up in that hair. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no offense to anybody with beards. You know, sometimes beards are very sexy. I uh, yeah, I am bearded. <laughs> I'm well. I guess I'm sort of bearded. Yeah. I have like the equivalent of like, yeah, like the soul patch, chin <laughs> strap, or whatever. <laughs> All right, we're getting off the topic on this for sure. 
Guys, if you have seen The Invitation, like Chris said earlier, let us know what your rating is or tell us what you think about the movie or our conversation here about it. Um, I think we enjoyed talking about it. We enjoyed watching it. Uh, you can let us know all of your thoughts on social media at The Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and soon to be Letterboxd. And you can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline for real guys at 972-666-7733. Give us a voicemail. We'll play it on our Shooting the Flames episode and respond to it. So please do. Feel free. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts right now, go on and uh, hit that review button. Give us a five-star review. Leave us a little snippet about what you think of our podcast, and we will read those on our Shooting the Flames episodes as well. Yeah, so we know that the majority of you don't actually listen to us on Apple Podcasts. A lot of you are Spotify. A lot of you are like, uh, you know, on Android and everything else. But the vast, vast, vast majority of any one uh, podcast app is Apple Podcasts. So that's why we keep saying that, and that's where we're basically getting charted and everything else so that's why we like pay attention to apple Podcasts. i'm an android guy personally uh even though i've got my my ipad and my macbook and everything else i'm an android phone phone guy so we're not trying to leave you guys out but that's where uh, a lot of the weight for how we show up in feeds and stuff happens and even on other aggregates and stuff that's where it's weighted so if you guys could just give us that review on apple Podcasts, if you have an account that would be wonderful we would really appreciate it it's been a while and we're starting to get a little lonely you know And also, if you would like even more content from us, head over to patreon.com slash thefilmflamers where you can find all of our bonus content, um, including this month we're doing a flashback episode to one of my favorite horror movies from my youth, Waxwork. And we've just recently restructured all the benefits over there so you can get early access to our regular feed episodes as well as all of our bonus content for as little as two dollars we'll also be including all of our patrons names and all of our show notes going forward so check out all of our beautiful patrons and our show notes every episode for 2020 and beyond well guys we really appreciate the listens and for taking the time to go on the journey that is the invitation with us Uh, we have one more episode coming out in january and that is our year-end review for 2019 and i know that chris and i are ready to talk about all of our favorites Um, and maybe not so favorites of 2019. So join us next week for that. And we'll even be talking about some of the movies that we're looking forward to in 2020, just like we did last year for 2019. That's right. Well, until next week, everybody. Sweet dreams. You ruined it. (laughs) Thank you. I was trying to think of a quote from the movie. You ruined it. You ruined it. Everything. <laughs> what a fucking bitch. <laughs> if anyone ruined the dinner party, it was you with that shrieking. <laughs> and put some pants on, Sadie. By God. Fucking bisexuals. <laughs> you depraved bisexual. What a mess. Oh my God. Cut all that out. <laughs> all right.